This is Connecting the Dots podcast, and this is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, this is HF Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer here at Baptist Memorial Hospital in New Albany, Mississippi. And hello, this is Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are honored to have a uh, Dr. Martin Lucenti, and he has an incredibly unique background. So, Dr. Lucenti, if you would tell us, introduce uh, yourself and who do you work for in your role, and tell us a little bit about your background, if you would. Sure, sure. I'm Marty Lucenti. I'm the uh, Chief Medical Officer for Vizient, uh, which is a healthcare performance improvement company. Uh, I have a little bit of an unusual background. I'm I'm an ER doc who uh, did an MD-PhD program. So uh, I'm an ER doc who got a PhD in uh, industrial engineering. So my undergrad was in systems engineering and computer science. Then I went on for a PhD while studying medicine uh, in industrial engineering. Did my residency in Boston, uh, then moved over to Northwestern. I was medical director, then vice chair of clinical operations at, at Northwestern. From there, I uh, moved over to the dark side uh, into the consulting field and did uh, uh, healthcare operations consulting uh, for med assets and then for Vizient. Uh, in addition to sort of my path uh, on the civilian side, uh, I was uh, I, my education was funded by the military. So. Uh, after graduating, I was in the uh, National Guard and one weekend a month uh, and 15 days in the summer turned into uh, three tours to Iraq, ran Baghdad ER twice, uh, and then uh, uh, spent a year in Afghanistan doing uh, managing many, most of the healthcare operations uh, in half of Afghanistan. So had a lot of opportunities to do healthcare operations in a lot of different settings. That, that's quite a... Uh... That's quite a pedigree. And, and first of all, I just want to thank you for, uh, you know, for serving. We, uh, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Uh, those are, those are great places to do emergency medicine. They're just really poor, uh, really unfortunate places to live for a while. You know? Sure. Well, Dr. Lucindy, when we have new people on here, we, um, we always like to hear about their background and their, and their journey, uh, into the uh, world of, of continuous improvement and, as, as a newbie, a fairly newbie in in the in the world of uh, of CI, just uh, share with us a little bit how how uh, you came to where you are in continuous improvement. So you know, I, I'm a I'm a little bit different. I think a lot of the folks you talk to started out in medicine, and then you know, and then found the passion for for process improvement, change management, or those things. I kind of went through the, you know, the formal education process of, uh, you know, of, of systems engineering, industrial engineering, uh, and then decided to apply those things in the area of medicine. So when I actually started my graduate work, uh, I was in the field of uh, knowledge-based expert systems. So I really, truly believe that I could, you know, go through medical school while learning how to do artificial intelligence and write computer programs. Uh, that could replace physicians. Uh, as I progressed through that journey, I very quickly realized that you know, a lot of that inference engine-based logic was a really great way to mimic uh, to mimic novice behavior, but it wasn't a great mechanism for uh, you know for mimicking expertise-based decision making. And so, kind of moved over to uh, 
collaborative support uh, work in my graduate work and then moved over into operations. But yeah, I was I was bold enough to think I was going to be able to write computer code that replaced physicians, uh, you know, at the end of uh, my graduate education. Uh, as I moved on, you know, a lot of the clinical operations, you know, in those skills were really helpful, you know, in, in administrative and in leadership roles in, in healthcare. You know, you know, lots of folks kind of start with the perspective that, you know, healthcare is such a unique industry. The, the risk structure is so far is so high that a lot of those traditional sciences around process improvement, operations, management, et cetera, just don't apply to something, you know, so unique. And, and I actually kind of take the opposite perspective. Those, the context of medicine is so unique, complete and utter failure to not fully capitalize on all the, you know, all the sciences of operations, management, process improvement, and so forth. So that's, I, I kind of backed into medicine as opposed to, uh, as, as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of backing into process improvement. That's interesting because most of us, most physicians, were exactly the opposite. You know, we we start out, you know, in medicine, and then we kind of figure out the the continuous improvement part. But but you yeah. you kind of went went opposite that. That's real interesting. I was going to ask, so I did a, a master's in health administration, kind of during residency. So I got into operations pretty early on in my career. Um, but one of the courses we took was, was in that engineering side of healthcare and medicine. And so I'd love to get your input on how that has affected and, and how you use that on a day to day basis, that, that PhD side of things. One of the things yeah. I was re really interested in when I was in residency is, you know, our, our chief residents, you know, they spent weeks making the schedule for the incoming <laughs> interns and residents. And while I was doing doing that uh, healthcare administration, we learned about um, you know linear programming and yeah. did the little plugin in Excel called Solver. Yeah. And so I sat there and I built out all the constraints and I helped them automate that kind of you know it didn't work yeah. fully, but it was just a it was just yeah. a complete you know epiphany for a lot of them that you you didn't have to do all of this hard tedious manual work. You could use those tools as that other industries are using already and and solve some of the problems have been vexing us for years but i'd love to get your your take on a lot of that yeah so you actually uh, you actually highlighted one of my claims my claims to fame so uh when i was chief president at harvard we had been working on a you know three months and uh three week in advance scheduling system and so when i when i became chief i created a, i used some, some of the same algorithmic approaches and and so before we started the year, everybody had their entire schedule for the entire year. So we went from a you know four to six week advance notice to uh, your entire year was scheduled in advance of the start of the year using some of those methodologies. But yeah, when you when you think about operations in healthcare, you know what's really interesting is, and I and I talk a lot about you know this concept of being sort of in that first generation of medicine. You know, the first generation of medicine is being able to take care of a patient incredibly, incredibly well. The next generation of medicine is is to create health systems that care that create incredibly reliable delivery of care. And, I, and I'll use an example of the emergency room. Right. The You know, emergency medicine became a specialty. Um, 
you know, and, and, and people are trained to take care of everything from a sliver in their finger to a gunshot wound to their chest, to a heart attack, to a stroke, to florid sepsis, you know, to a broken toe, uh, you know, to, you know, to an early, to, to a miscarriage. And we're really good at all of that, all of the reliability of an individual patient. But if you go to most emergency rooms right now, there's an individual care care model that's very reliable right in the midst of a care system that's incredibly unreliable. And so what you see is in emergency medicine, most of our most of our error, most of the errors we monitor aren't errors of commission. Nobody doesn't know what an ST elevation MI is, but can we get an EKG in time? Can we get the cath lab activated in time? So Healthcare is a is a is an area that's just waiting for the reliability at the individual and care encounter to to move to the reliability of the overall care system, and so that's going to require a set of professionals and a and a set of doctors who understand those basic those basic fundamentals. And I and I use a simple one. I you know I I uh, you know I did a you know four years in med school. And, and emergency medicine, there's three-year residencies and there's four-year residencies. And some of us, you know, take the long route and do four years of residency. So in eight years, in eight years to become, uh, you know, to be educated, to be an emergency medicine doctor, um, you know, an emergency room is the purest form of a queuing system there is, right? People come in, they line up, they get triage, they get care, and they leave right? It is the purest form. There is Little's form. There's all kinds of sciences. You know, I think I took an entire one-year course on queuing systems when I was in graduate school. There's an immense amount of science around that process. In my four years of education, my four years of med school and my four years of residency in emergency medicine, how many hours did we spend studying queuing systems? Zero. Zero. Yeah, zero. And so, you know, what you start to realize is to get to that next generation of, you know, exceptional healthcare, our clinicians are going to have to take that same understanding of the science of, of, and reliability of an individual care encounter and start to think about that uh, in the broader care system and, and how we move patients through. So often, you know, we just don't build that reliability into the system itself even though the individual encounter may be very reliable. You know, I, I, when I talk to people about, you know, just care navigation, it's incredibly hard to, to navigate the, you know, our care system to get through it reliably. So I think, you know, as we move on in healthcare, I think the, the keys for us to get where we aspire to be is, is a lot of these operational sciences to move into, into the minds of, of, of healthcare providers. And, you know, I, I did a lot of work, and one of the things I kind of realized is, you know, as I went through it, is it's it's not going to be solved by engineers moving into healthcare. It's going to be solved by clinicians understanding the sciences of operations. Healthcare is too complicated, too specific, in a, in and in a high reliable system concept where even one percent errors are unacceptable. The only way we're going to get that design in those systems is for clinicians to, to adopt those operating models. You're not going to be able to simply get engineers to come over and dabble in the healthcare space. Jake was uh, 
Jake was on the curriculum committee at his uh, medical school. And I was just curious, uh, Martin, do you think that in the future, in the near future, that we're going to see more and more of this type of education integrated into our medical education? Because, because like you yeah. said, right now, you know, we don't learn any of anything about continuous improvement, about about systems and, and efficiency until until we get out in practice. Yeah. I, you know, I think you're going to see I think you're going to see both, you know, operational sciences, you know, and, and process improvement sciences becoming part of a, you know, part of a standard uh, medical school curriculum and even part of the reg, you know, the residency curriculum. You know, I think we, you know, we've got that biostatistics, you know, all of us get some epidemiology and biostatistics, but I think the next frontier, you know, is process control, you know, getting some training and process control and process improvement. And then I also think more and more and more because of the technology build, I think you're going to start to see a need for a lot more sophistication on, uh, you know, human, uh, human computer interface design. You know, if you think about it, we've, you know, we brought in the computer system into the dynamic, but most docs really still go into the room, talk to the patient, come back over to a desk, interface with a computer system. I think you're eventually going to start to see our, you know, some of that education about how you interface uh, with a computer, you know, in a, in a, in a multimodal decision-making model, incorporating the patient. I think that's another thing that's going to come into our education as, as we move forward. It's just so it's so imperative as we try to change the dynamic of care encounters, especially as you start to see the migration that we're dealing with now in the virtual care environment. Yeah, I think that is all really interesting. Um, and I, I'm pretty fascinated, uh, you know, by, you know, the work that you, you, you talked about earlier with the scheduling and sorry, I, I won't dwell on it too much, but, um, you know, I feel like in, in healthcare that we've really done a great job over the past, couple of decades in improving the operations and the efficiency of surgical care. And I feel like emergency medicine is really the next area of the healthcare system that has, has been improved pretty dramatically over the last decade, you know, with all the wait times posted and, and people really trying to improve that turnover. The other parts of the system are, are pretty lagging, uh, especially inpatient, uh, you know, throughput and things of that nature. I, since you work for Vizian and you probably get to see multiple systems, I would just like to get your take on on how you feel and how you think um, those improvements are, are moving to other other aspects of healthcare outside of just surgical and, and you know emergency medicine. In some places, I feel like it's gotten better. You know, you know, one of the things that I see is is, is as you look there there's a natural it's easy for engineers to move into a um a scripted and a pathway context you know so in surgery kind of rep you know surgical procedure uh in the care of a patient that you've already identified the problem especially if it's an intervention is really amendable to, to process improvement and lean engineering it, it, it's almost like an assembly line process all right it, the, what what's important to understand is there's a very different dynamic in the diagnostic phase. There's a very different di dynamic in the diagnostic phase that changes the, the way you engineer that phase of care. Um, 
you know, so, you know, when you, when you look at surgeries, it's a lot like an assembly line, things start to go, go awry, you stop, right? Right. That you just stop. If you, if you look, if you look at emergency medicine and you look in those diagnostic phases, you know, extra patients, if you get an unexpected event, you can't shut down. You actually have to create the system to be resilient to all of those stressors, as opposed to, you know, a pre-programmed sequence that you follow very closely. And so a lot of the dynamics of a diagnostic phase is very different. And there's a lot of Bayesian decision-making and, and, and really understanding the nuances of probability versus that, you know, how do I do, you know, how do I move from point A to point B in a procedural endeavor? And I think uh, to your point, you're, you're, you're talking about it. I think some of the, you know, some of the complexities of the various phases of therapy and diagnostics that you have up on the floor makes the makes the dynamic of the problem really complicated. And I think that's why you've seen so much, you know, so many challenges on that. But what I will say is that there are there are spots in that that are really amendable to it, you know, and uh, and, and what I would say is, that, you know, one of the things that's most important as you look into those spaces is is really starting to think not just about change management and, and process improvement, but really thinking about process control. So, you know, one of the things that our, our consulting one of our consulting teams does is, you know, they they eliminate, uh, you know, they eliminate collapsing. So we have a, you know, a program gone in 90 days and really basically all it is is they audit every every central line on a floor and they audit it every four hours. Uh, they check it. They they monitor flushes. They you know, they monitor you know, alcohol preps to the swab, they looked at the 90% of the things that lead to infection and they just massively audited it. And we even have the, we even have the secretaries audit those dressings to make sure that they're intact and all of those things. And it's remarkable how all of a sudden we start not having collapses. And what's important is we make that change, but what we do is we de-escalate the, 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 we de-escalate the, the sampling. So if, if a floor goes two weeks without without a collapse, they get the they get the check and do the auditing every eight hours, then every twelve hours, then once a day. The second we start seeing any compromise of the leading indicators, you go right back to the beginning, and that constant reinforcement of control allows for a continuous and sustained improvement rather than just a you know make an intervention so often what we see is we make an intervention and we have problems with sustainment so taking that concept of change and moving it into process control uh, is a really important thing as you sort of as you look at endeavors on that front you know dr lucenti this is skip you know uh another thing i'd love to hear your reaction is uh, I, we think about systems a lot, and we're thinking about systems a lot today, especially because uh, we recently spent some time, all three of us, with uh, uh, Dr. Steve Spear from MIT, and uh, he, I think I still got some brain cells burning as a result of that. But, yeah. um, so, but my experience in EDs is one of them that I've noticed uh, pretty consistent. And about a year ago, I wrote an article called How is Your Management System Working? And it was a pretty simple little experiment. I asked the ED director what her goals were, and uh, she shared them with me. Now, I already already know, before I asked the question, I already knew that 
70% of her patients got CAT scans. So, I, so then the question yep. was, uh, what's the goals of the radiology director? And her yep. response was, well, I don't know. And I yep. said, well, what's the goals of the lab director? And the question, answer was the same, I don't know. How about yep. admissions? I don't know. Yep. And then she went on to say, I don't know, and why should I care? And yep. And so what that shows you is good people with good intentions don't understand that the property that you're trying to get ultimately comes to the interactions of the parts, not the parts themselves, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so, so we, do, do you see that a lot still? Yeah, you do. Is, is most of healthcare, most of healthcare um, actually aren't assembly lines. Most of healthcare are, are really much more in the, in the d design mode of complex systems. And so when I, when I do healthcare systems, it's really important to understand uh, it's really important to understand the base, the sciences and the approaches to designing complex systems. Complex systems are things that have a lot of inter interdependent parts. Okay. And I, and when, when I look at ERs, ERs are a classic example of that, right? ERs are a classic queuing system. And more often than not, when I go to emergency rooms, the problem they're solving is figuring out who can safely wait, right? You walk into most ERs, they do this massive triage process to make sure they can figure out if you if you can wait. All right. And which is great. And it's an important thing. And, you know, if you truly have limited constraint resources, that's what you need to do. But, but most people in queuing systems solve the op opposite problem. They don't solve what do I do when I don't have enough resources. They solve the problem of how do I always consistently and reliably have enough resources. And it's a three resource problem in the emergency room. It's a doc nurse uh, bed problem. Okay. And what you have to understand is the interdependence of those. If I have enough docs to see 10 patients an hour, enough nurses to see five patients an hour and enough beds to see 7.5 patients an hour, I'm only going to see five patients an hour, right? I am only as good as my constraining variable. If I double, if I double my nursing staff so that I could take care of 10 patients an hour, I don't go all the way up to 10 patients an hour. I only go up to 7.5, my next constraint. And so what you see in process improvement in complex systems, if you don't understand the complexity and the interdependencies, you can imagine over time, we all kind of settle into 7.5 patients an hour. What happens if I tinker with one of the variables in that context? What do I get? You get absolutely nothing, right? And so that's the dynamic that you have to be very, very attuned to. So when I look at ERs, the equation I start with, the equation I start with is very simple. I study the arrival pattern. I know the arrival pattern by hour of day, day of week, week of month, month of year. And I understand it with a confidence interval. I understand what the average, I understand what the 75th, I understand what the 90th percentile. I need to know all of that because designing a system to averages is going to give me a failure rate of at least 50%. Right. And That's so right. I've That's really right. got to I've really got to understand the interdependencies. And then I really truly have to understand the capacity and demand variables, uh, uh, probability distributions. And so that's how I look at an emergency room. As I look at it as a queuing system, it's got an arrival pattern. I, I it's, and I got I've got capacity models for my docs, nurses, and beds, and I understand their interdependence. And then 
I solve the problem of reliably and consistently having enough resources, not solving the problem, you know, of, of, of who doesn't get care, should I be short resources? Does that make sense? It, it does. And one little side uh, note that you might find humorous, just because it's happened to me three times, is uh, is when uh, working with in different EDs at, with different physicians, I've had physicians with good intentions uh, pull me aside because I'll be asking them some questions. They're seeing the patient. And then what I've noticed is that they're not using the wow, the computer. They're seeing a patient two, three, four, five, and then they take that batch in their area and they sit down with their other doctors yep. and have a good time. And so I'll, I'll talk to them about the, you know, maybe the thought of one piece flow and you'd be maybe not surprised, but I'm always surprised when yeah. at, least, at least three of them have pulled me aside and said, now, listen, you probably don't know this, Skip, but batching is much more efficient than one. <laughs> and I'll say, yeah. OK, how do I respond to that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, No, that's exactly it. And those are those dynamics. And, and you have to understand you get really weird uh uh, you, when you, you, you get really weird dynamics and interaction. And so, you know, in, in healthcare, it's a really important to realize, you know, especially in emergency medicine, and I talked a little bit about this up front, is in emergency medicine, because the system is unreliable, most of the errors in emergency medicine are errors of omission, not errors of commission, right? Is it that most of the errors are the byproduct of people dutifully doing other things, but but not getting to something in time. So if you look at most of the metrics of quality, it's time to antibiotics for pneumonia. Like what doctor does not know that pneumonia needs antibiotics, right? But you'll see ERs all across the country are struggling to get antibiotics in four hours or two hours. All of those different you know performance measures, all of the sepsis measures. It's not that people don't know it's that there we didn't solve the capacity demand problem first. And so you're making them up in a system where they don't have adequate resources. They then have to prioritize their time and then they're set up for errors of errors of omission. Does that make sense? All right. I'm, I'm going to need you all to explain this a little bit better. One piece flow versus batching. So I work as a hospitalist and, you know, I do the same thing. The ER will call me because I, I do primarily admission shifts. And uh, the hospitalist office is it's not too far away from the ED, but it's not right next to it. It's not in there. Uh, so I have to walk a little ways, but not not too far. And so but I will usually wait until I get at least to probably three patients before I go to the ER, because I know just as yep. soon as I leave, they're going to call me with another one and I'll have yep. to turn around and go back. So yep. convince me that one piece flow is better <laughs> than batching. <laughs> All right, I will. So here's, here's, here's actually the interesting thing. I'll actually tell you it utterly, totally, and completely depends. Okay. And so if you're a constraining variable, if you're a constraining variable, if you're the constraining variable uh, for our system, uh, anything that optimizes your productivity actually in the end optimizes the overall system performance. But if you are not the constraining variable, having you do one piece at a time actually optimizes the patient's experience. Does that make sense? The, the, the patient yeah. turnover. And so I would think that 
I would be the constraining variable <laughs> because I have to place the orders for admission. Yep. Or, well, really, I have to see the patient yep. before the, the orders for admission get placed, at least. But so would the ED yeah. doc be the constraining variable in the, the first situation, right? Well, so here's the thing is, is you have to decide if that's so first, when you look at what you want to be the constraining variable, what do you want to be the constraining variable? And I see this backwards in hospitals all the time. You want the constraining variable to be your most expensive resource, right? And so in general, you would want it to be, you know, to, to be the physician. Okay, in general, you'd want it. I go to many hospitals and the throughput is constrained by the environmental services people that make $14 an hour, you know, mm. by the transporters, all that. I, I watch this all the time is they con the constraining variable becomes the least expensive resource in the system. You generally do want the doctors to be the most the constraining variable. But here's the thing. If you plan it really well, you'd like it to be that you're not you are just adequately staffed that you never really constraining the throughput. And so then Skip's scenario becomes bad. So if, if I have a capacity, a physician capacity, if, if my, if my demand is, you know, my demand at 90% is eight patients an hour and I staff to be able to comfortably do 10, right. I should not really be the constraining variable and therefore should have enough in, enough redundancy, enough excess there to be able to do individual encounters and make sure that my patients, my patients get an immediate response with each step is what Skip's trying to emphasize. Now, what you're saying, Jake, and, and is what happens at most places, at most places um, during the peak, and this happens with ERs, most ERs are perfectly designed, perfectly designed, such that they can't deal with their average volume for about 12 hours a day. And then they send, spend some portion of the next 12 hours catching up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in that place, you are purely, purely the constraining variables. You can't even, we can't even do the average amount and anything that makes you more efficient in that. And if batching makes you more efficient in that context, batching is actually best for the overall performance of the system. Does that make sense? It does, and, and I'm just glad you validated what I do on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> so before you get to the process optimization, you got to make sure you have you have resources so that you can do it, so that your resources exceed your demand. The second you don't, the equation gets different. And this is the same that happens so often with with this, you know, surgical first starts and all those things. You know, surgeon's hour is incredibly, incredibly precious. And so, you know, you want to, you don't want to have wasted hours. You don't want to have the capacity to be doing way more and under and under utilizing them. You want to get relatively close. This happens with a lot of ERs. The best way to maximize productivity is to be behind, right? To be behind. Because that way there's always another piece of work for you that doesn't unfortunately play out well for your customers, right? Let me ask another myth now that I have you on the yeah. phone. We hospitalists all believe that the ER will hold patients until a certain hour and then call them all with a, uh, you know, a, a bundle of patients right before their the hospital shifts end. Is that, <laughs> is that true? Have you seen that? That is absolutely true. And, and let me give you, the, let me give you the logic of that. All right. So the logic of that is there, 
when when an ER doc prioritizes their time, okay, priority number one is somebody that's acutely decompensating. Priority number two is say hello to my patients. And priority number three is say goodbye to my patients. And so what you will see is they're taking new patients, saying hello, saying hello, trying to catch back up to saying goodbye. And then finally, change of shift happens or proximity change of shift and they're not saying hello anymore and and saying good, goodbye becomes their priority. Do you see what I'm saying is? For yeah, me, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, for, so that's the optimization qua- equation they're solving. And so like for many people, they look at the in ERs, they look at that time from discharge order to to you know, to, to actually leaving. And people will spend a lot of time focusing on that metric. I don't focus on that metric. I actually consider time from discharge order to nurse discharges you. I actually measure that. I use that as a measure of how busy my nurses are because I know what they're going to prioritize first. They're going to prioritize hello. They're going to prioritize doing a step. What is the last, the lowest priority on a nurse's, on a nurse's, uh, in a, a sequence of lists, it's saying goodbye to one patient so they get a new patient, right? And so I know if that interval is long, I've got a nursing staff that's pretty stressed because they're. I didn't give them the, the cushion for them to be, like Skip was talking about, immediately addressing each and every step. They're batching. They're saying hello, saying hello, and not getting back to that to that goodbye. So those are some of the nuances of how you how you look at some of these things. Most people are actually doing the right things. Most most of the times in healthcare, we just didn't start with the resource, uh, you know, the capacity demand matching, and we put ourselves into a constrained resource problem, and then a whole series of of different optimizations happen in that context. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, well, Doctor Lucenti, we could uh, spend hours talking to you. I know at least I could, and I know we did recently mm-hmm. had a nice dinner together, and and really looking forward to doing some work together in the future. But I just want to, uh, on behalf of Doctor Lancaster and Doctor Mason, just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us, and and uh, I've burnt some more brain cells today thinking about this. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but. Uh, but really thankful for you and uh, your service to the country and uh, the, the great work you're doing. And I just want to say how thankful and appreciative I am for you. It was an honor being with you guys today. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks really. a lot, Martin.